He had notated certain things with dots and dashes. Looked sort of like the Morse code to me. And as the music played, he would point to the dot or the dash. And I would look at him and say, yeah, man, I didn't know what this meant, you know. But he would point to this and say, mm, that, 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 you know. Now, what was so interesting about it, he was able to sing phonetically what he meant by the dots and dashes. If it's a bad after a line bash, you know. So I probably did that for him. It was a da 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 By him being a drummer, maybe this was some kind of way he notated the best way he could. The first couple of times, I don't know whether he really knew this, I thought he was crazy. I mean, what is whoever heard of this, you know? But the money was so well paid, I, I said, man, this is great. Makes a lot of sense to me. This is 80s Ogrophies. Hello and welcome to 80sography and another audio commentary with the great Hugh Padgham. I love doing these audio commentaries, uh, probably more than any other type of episode. One, because that's the least amount with me in it. That's probably why I do so well. And two, because I learned so much about some great albums and this one is no exception. So settle in on your devices if you so wish, or just listen as an interview if you're on the move, to the audio commentary of Phil Collins' Face Value with the producer Hugh Padgham. This is the start of the interview. So when was the last time you listened to it all the way through the album, prior to this? Um, this afternoon. <laughs> okay, prior to this afternoon. I thought I'd better do, you know, I'd better do some um, revision in case. Yeah, I, I appreciate that, yeah. Before we, we do the three, two, ones and that, so I, I just want to get a bit of background before we play the album as to how you got to the point where you were making the album basically. So how the actual project is your first production credit, wasn't it, as a producer? It was my first proper production credit. I had met Phil when he 
came down to play on Peter Gabriel's third solo album that I was engineering with Steve Lillywhite producing the the year before. And um, Phil came down and played several sessions for on, on Peter's album. And really the, the the drum sound that ended up on in the air tonight was really discovered on Peter's session. When I say discovered, you know, it's the whole thing with the listen mic and going through the console with massive compression um, that, that, that made this sort of huge sound. And um, you, you hear this sound on a track called The Intruder on Peter's album. And that, that's, that's where, uh, as I said, this whole thing begun. And so when Phil was fiddling around at home with his own songs, not knowing if he was going to make an album or not at the time, when he eventually either decided or was persuaded or whatever to, to make the album, he remembered me from that session and um, got hold of me and said, would you like to make the, the record with me? What do you think he saw in you that made him think that you can go from being the engineer on that on that project to being a producer for him? Well, I think sometimes the lines can be a bit blurred between engineering and producing in a way. From my point of view, uh, I mean, I'm not trying to detract anything from, from Steve Lillywhite at all, but I mean, we did several albums together, including XTC and stuff. But I, I don't forget Phil only came down to play the drums on the session, so he wasn't there during the whole making of Peter's yeah. album. I think he just thought, wow, this guy, this sort of young kid is uh, happening with drums and I'm a drummer. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and so, let, let you know, well, he obviously listened to Peter's record after it had been made. You know, I'm still very proud of that album and having engineered it and, and stuff. So, you know, I think that's how I got asked. And, you know, and, and so it goes. And that's often the case. You know, it was the same with working with, with the police. I got recommended from Andy Partridge from XTC because I'd done a couple of albums with XTC and they were touring with with the police and and just you know often these things happen just through word of mouth or whatever the phil collins face value audio commentary three two one play so in the air tonight do you remember the first time you heard i assume he would have played the demos for you yes Phil played the demos. He he'd been working at, at home in his house where he was sort of now living alone, and um, invited me down to the house one day to play his demos that he'd been recording on his eight track. And he'd been learning how to work the eight track and the little console he had, and and um, and he had the. Roland CR78 drum machine that we're hearing at the moment. And um, what's fascinating is that when we eventually got to the studio to start making the record, um, the first track I think we actually started on day one was In the Air Tonight. And um, so he brought his equipment into the studio 
and we could not get the same sound that he had on his on his demo. Yeah. It was very difficult. The, these drum machines in those days were, were were relatively sort of new and quite sort of prehistoric, really, compared to nowadays. And we just couldn't get it to be the same feel, the, the rhythm. It just had one big knob for speed, and um, it didn't have any sort of, you couldn't dial in a tempo. And so anyway, to cut a long story short, we just decided that we would copy the the drum machine and and eventually the the main profit five pad sound that you hear there in the beginning we just copy it from the demo onto the 24 track tape he had made his demos on a eight track one inch tape recorder don't forget everything was analog in those days so we copied it onto the 24 track sadly losing a generation but it didn't really matter and um that's how we built the song up and we did it with a couple of um of of the songs as well and um what you know it was such a lucky thing to have done and been able to do it and 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 also the, the fact that he had learned to record it quite well it's like you know sometimes people bring in demos that they've only made on a cassette and there's no way that you could use the quality that's on a on a cassette to you know to then go on and make a proper sort of you know, hi-fi album so to speak so was it easy to isolate that element from the demo onto the uh actual recording? yeah well he had, he had eight tracks so he oh, okay so you could isolate it right he yeah. recorded the 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 drum machine on one track and then he had recorded the the um the the profit sort of pad sound you know that's the sort of moody sound you're hearing on on um, another track and then i made them both sort of stereo with you know bits and pieces that we had in 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 the studio but everything was redone he hadn't ever at that point we hadn't uh, uh, thought of putting the drums on at the end of the song, and so there was certainly nothing like that on the, on the demo. And we redid all the vocals as as well. And, so was um, this the first take with the drums? Uh, yeah, pretty well, as far as I remember. Yeah, get the drum sound together, and then um, you know he's such an amazing drummer that he, he, he you know he didn't really need to do many takes, but I think it was more or less the first take. So I was wanting to know is after that he did the drum take, did he do another one afterwards to see if he could better it? Or was it like, no, that's definitely it. This is the one. <laughs> um, well, the thing is, in those days, everything was done onto analog tape. And so you couldn't keep one drum track like you can now if you're working digitally with Pro Tools and you just keep it and try another one. If if you were going to do another drum track, it meant you had to erase the other one. Oh, right, yeah. So that, that's a huge difference between making records nowadays and in those days. If, if, and, and, you know, unless you had loads and loads of spare tracks, we had 24 tracks. We actually had 23 tracks because we had one track that you used to put a what's called a sympathy code on it. It's so like a code that allows you to um, use uh, um, faders when you're mixing. You, you can automate the 
the, the, the faders on the console. So basically, we had 23 tracks. And um, so you would put the drum track down, listen to it, and go, okay, that's good. Or it's not good, we'll do another one. But if you did another one, the other one disappeared. That's a lot of pressure, isn't it? When you've got yeah. a good take, you've got to do a brilliant... Well, I mean, that, that was the whole thing with producing records in those days, is, is that you had to make decisions as you, as you went along. Nowadays, with Pro Tools or whatever version you're, of, of the digital recording you're using, you, you can have tracks um, forever, ad infinitum. And so, so many people... It, don't know or don't kind of understand that in those days, 40 years ago, we had to, you know, you really had to make decisions as you went along. And then pre my career, if you go back to sort of the 60s, where you only had four uh, tracks at one point in the mid 60s and then eight tracks in the late 60s and then 16 tracks in the early 70s, even more, you had to like, bounce down the drums and the bass together and things together to be able to free up tracks to put vocals on and things. So that's, that was even more um, amazing what, how records managed to be made in those days. Okay, we're into track two now. This must be love. Um, yep. Any memories of recording this song or when you first heard well, it? Well, um, what I remember about this song is that it... it we had this guy called Alfonso Johnson who plays the bass on several tracks on the record, on the album. And um, I knew his name because he played with Weather Report, which was a band that, that I loved and, and, well, still do. I was going to say, you know, I was like really into those sort of, that kind of band. Do you know Weather Report? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Bill Collins and, was a fan of well, wasn't he? And I don't know how Phil had met Alfonso, but he I think he had met him somewhere on tour with Genesis or something. Anyway, he came over to play the bass, and I was just blown away with with how he he played the bass. I'd never really heard anyone play in the same way that that he did. So melodic. Um, amazing so um, that I remember very much about the song and then I think I think he Phil originally had a drum machine pattern from the um, drum machine the same drum machine the Roland CR78 from In the Air Tonight and but we we copied the pattern into real percussion so Phil plays congas and clave and whatever it is on it. And um, so, yeah, that's, that's um, you know, my big memories of that. And then we went to L.A. and we did, um, after a few weeks, maybe six weeks of recording in England, we went to L.A. and we did some tracks there. And... Um, there's a guy called Stephen Bishop who's yeah. singing the backing vocals on this song. So we did that in L.A. And um, that was the first time I'd ever been to L.A. as well. So that was really exciting for me to go there and record in, in this famous recording studio. So when you're recording somebody doing um, backing vocals, like a guest coming for one track, 
is it a case of just let them do what they want to do? Are they instructed? Like in this instance, we telling Stephen, this is kind of what we want, or is it just have a free pass and see what you feel like doing? Yeah, I think I think um, Phil actually had an idea of of um, what he wanted from Stephen on on that song, and Bish, as we used to call him, was fantastic. He was such a such a great character, but still is. But you know, he's I haven't seen him for for, for years, but uh, he was fantastic. And other times when we back when we went back to LA on some of the other albums to do things. Um, Bish would come down to the sessions and amuse us all with his stories and this, that, and the other. Okay, so now on to track three, Behind the Lines, a yeah. very unique in Phil Collins' career, a cover of a Genesis song. I know. Did you no, watch I... the classic albums documentary that you were in? Y- yeah, yeah. In the early 2000s, they talked about it. I know, it's so funny, isn't it? I think he 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 said no one's ever covered a Genesis song before, <laughs> so I'm going to. <laughs> but the story of this was somehow Phil played the Genesis version. He put the record on one day and he had it on 45 instead of 33 and a half, 45 being the singles um, speed for anybody who didn't grow up um, with records. And he suddenly thought, oh my God, this sound, this song sounds great, sped up, so let's do a version of it. And no one's ever no one's ever done a Genesis cover before, so I'm going to do one. And um, so that's how this song uh, uh, came about. And I think we recorded the, uh, it, it's, I think it's the only song on the album where we actually recorded the drums in LA. And we were, so we did, um, we did that in LA. So the reason he recorded, did he re-record the drums in LA or was it the fact it hadn't been recorded yet? No, it hadn't been recorded. So this this song we planned, um, I can't remember the actual reason why, but we somehow planned to record it in LA. And um, it's also the first song on the album that has the Phoenix horns on it who were the earth, wind and fire horns that, that we, I guess, famously used. And um, Did you ever hear I, Mike and Tony's thoughts on this version? Did they ever comment on it when you worked on them for Abacab? Yeah, no, I think, I think, they, liked, I think they liked it. Behind the Lines wasn't on Abacab, it was on... Um, no, I'm saying, but you would have seen the next working on Abacab. Did they refer oh, to Oh, I see. Yes, yes, exactly. Um, so they never directly like when you met them for the Abacab sessions did they go oh yeah I quite like that version you did of our song yeah or was it like there was no reference to it at all yeah no no the, 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 there was reference to it I mean I when I worked on um, when Phil said oh I'd really like you to do a Genesis album and, and stuff so uh, Mike was fantastic about it, and so was Tony. But Tony was a little bit well. Hang on, you guys, uh, you're you're coming in as a bit of a team now, and I'm not sure that you know I'm I'm sort of in the team yet, so to speak. But um, no, I mean it worked out fine. Abacab was was a fantastic album, and it was a a, a different. A, a different way to go for for Genesis in, in a way as well. So um, I think you know it was just 
changing eras, I suppose. Um, but no, they, they loved it. And of course, you know, they would have earned money off it. As I guess well. they would appreciate the royalties for an album that sold, what, 10 million copies or whatever, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So here we are. By the way, there's, there's, a, there's a crossfade from behind the lines into the roof is leaking. And doing crossfades in those days with working with analog tape was quite difficult because you had to sort of you did you had your mix from behind the lines and then you had your mix from the roof is leaking and then you had to play both mixes to to to, to uh, of two different machines onto another machine to record the overlap if you see what I mean because again you know digitally today it'd be really easy to do but in those days it wasn't so you then had to go to a third machine and then cut uh, make an edit into the end of behind the lines into the beginning of roof is leaking and that was quite hairy just to do that anyway that's just a, another technical side so here we've got um eric clapton came down and played some bits and pieces and um, and a guy called Joe Partridge played some slide guitar, and Daryl Sturmer, who played lots of guitar on the album, played the banjo as well. And um, so, is Eric Clapton actually on this version? Because the classic albums documentary plays an alternate version. It's like the first version where Eric Clapton is playing the main guitar. And well. The, the, this is the story which I think Phil alludes to a bit on the classic albums documentary is that Eric came down to the studio and um, it was quite late and it was in the days when Eric was still drinking and I think Phil was nervous to have Eric come down and play on his album so Eric came down and everybody had a drink and then another drink and so by the time... Uh, we got it together to sort of start doing some recording. Eric was a bit sort of five sheets to the wind, if you see what I mean. <laughs> yeah. And so he went in the studio with his guitar and, um, you know, it probably would have been better if he hadn't had a drink, if you see what I mean. Yeah. So we, we recorded um, as many times as we could on, on the spare tracks. And... Um, no, there's, there's there is a fair bit of Eric on it, but we were we were so sort of Phil and I were so critical about making this record at the time, even though, well, I was only twenty five or twenty six, and and he would have been late twenties. He's only four years older than me, I think, Phil, and and we just thought, oh, we're a bit disappointed in this, and so we got Joe Partridge to come down and fill in the gaps and then again like nowadays you can't nowadays if you're working digitally you can just take bits and pieces and move them around really really easily and so it, it wasn't very easy to do that in those days so we could have picked the best bits he had done and made a much better track I think and and I think as I said a second ago Phil alluded to that on classic albums but um no, he 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 did play some stuff, and I think now with us being, 
you know, a bit more experience and relax, we probably could have made a better job at putting more of Eric into that track. But I still I still love it as it is. And you? Yes, yeah, a great song. It's a really great song. And uh, so but- then it crossfades. You know, I was talking about the crossfade. It it, it crossfades into into um, droned, which we're listening to now. So it's always the aim to have a couple of instrumentals. It was the fact that there wasn't just enough material to do like twelve songs. So there was a case of let's let's put these instrumentals we have on the album. No, I don't think so at all. I think um, Phil had these ideas um, uh, of of songs. I mean, you know, don't forget we're recording this uh, as as a you know Phil's more known as a drummer really even though he'd been singing the lead singer in genesis for for several years we're sort of just making an album for the sake of making an album we had no concept or thoughts of it being successful we're just trying to make a muso album as 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 we would say in the business you know get some great musicians in and so the, the idea of doing instrumentals was never even thought about it. I mean, you know, the following songs, an instrumental as well, really, hand in hand. And um, so, um, no, Phil just had these musical ideas and we just made them into tracks. And, um, you know, it wasn't until we finished recording the tracks that we ever thought about then putting them in in an order in, in, in... you know, into the order that they are on the album. And, of course, in those days, you had two sides. The CDs hadn't come out then, so you always had to sort of think, okay, what's going to be the first track of side one? What's going to be the last track on side one? And what's going to be in the middle between those tracks, you know, and so on and so forth. So, and 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 again, now we're getting to the end of Droned, which is just... A few minutes long, it crossfades into hand in hand. So you know, I've always sort of looked at these tracks as as being sort of one, really. I suppose. Yeah, it's like two parts of like an instrumental suite, isn't it? Kind of. Yeah, yeah. it is. Yeah. And just going back to drone quickly, this guy called Shankar L. Shankar, yeah, a fantastic Indian guy. Again, I don't know how Phil knew him, but on that last track, he played these amazing tamboras. And and he does those voice drums where he goes, <laughs> and he is absolutely amazing, brilliant guy, and fantastic Indian violinist as well. He works a lot with Peter Gabriel, doesn't he? He has done, yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 He's so, an amazing guy. So it's quite weird to have a have two instrumentals on an album and b have them both together because often you'll get instrumentals like one on one side, one on the other. So the idea of was that always part of the um, concept then, was to have one go into the other one? No, I don't think it was. I think we just, you know, we very much made the album with sort of 12 songs. Well, there was a couple of other songs which which um, famously uh, uh, didn't end up being on the album, which one of them was, was, a, was a, a massive hit. But yeah. we're not talking about that, which I was always rather sort of, sad about because I had nothing to do with that other song but um anyway that's the way it was we recorded 12 songs and and I 
you know, at some point we sat down and thought, how are we going to put this album together? How is it going to, you know, make sense as an entity and a piece of music? And I think we thought, well, let's put the two instrumentals together. And they cross-faded really nicely into each other. And so it is what it is, you know. And um, so I, I think it works really well. I got me hand in hand was one of the tracks that I would kind of be kind of dismissive of early, like in the eighties. But it's I really love it now. Do you? I especially love the children's choir on it, which I think I find kind of haunting in a way. Yeah, yeah. How did how did that come about? Actually, using a children's choir. Oh, now you're asking me a <laughs> question. I can't. You know, I can't really remember. But we did we did them in LA. And they also actually, um, although you wouldn't really know it, they also sang on Tomorrow Never Knows, which is the last track on, on the second side. But everything was all sort of made to be weird and backwards and sideways and everything on Tomorrow Never Knows. But, but um, yeah, I guess it was a chant, really. And somebody, Phil or whoever, he said, well, why don't we get some, you know, young kids sound on it? Because on some of the other songs, or one or two of the other songs, I can't think what it is right at the moment, If Leaving Me Is Easy or something, you know, Phil sings in a very high backing vocal, you know, sound to, you know, to, to, to make different sound for backing vocals, you know, like a sort of soprano sound and stuff. So if you listen early on in the song, you'll notice there's an there's a echo on, on the snare drum. So when he plays the snare we made a, an echo on it using a, a, a tape recorder as a way of, of putting echo on it. So that's, that's quite interesting. And um, as far as I remember, I think Phil played marimba on it as well, which was a first for him, which you hear as well more at the beginning. I think it's a really, it's got a, a really sort of up vibe to it. And I think it's just a nice way to finish side one. Is it? more difficult to mix an instrumental or is it a different challenge well, you know, anything, the focal it, point of a song which is what the vocal tends to be you've got like everything all kind of mixed together does it make it a, a different challenge no if anything mixing instrumental songs is is actually a bit easier because mixing vocals in a song from a technical engineering point of view can be quite difficult to not lose the vocals but have them clear but keeping it sort of it's really hard for me to describe but keeping that vocal in the music but it's yeah it's 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 actually can be very difficult to keep the vocals you don't want them too loud but you don't want them too soft so you can't hear them and that can be quite difficult depends on the song um if you've got a song that's got the kitchen sink on it you know, loads and loads of stuff, then all the different instruments take up sonic room, if you see what I mean. They, t- they take up room in the track. And so from my point of view as a, as a producer, I'm always thinking of what might be getting in the way of a vocal in terms of vocals are generally sort of like middly sounding. It's a middly sounding instrument as opposed to anything high or low like bass. 
And so you have to try and work so that things have their own space. So in that sense, instrumentals, you don't have the problem of fitting the vocal in. So if anything, instrumental stuff is actually a little bit easier. Easier. Can you give any track you've produced or engineered in your career where you think on reflection, yeah, I kind of lost the vocal there, I kind of buried it a bit too much? Well, I had a classic thing with Sting in, in the in the police. He always uh, wanted his vocals buried, which is kind of weird, seeing as uh, he is a singer, and singers are usually sort of built quite an ego. <laughs> he was always well, especially on the Ghost in the Machine album, was always when we were mixing, saying, "I, I want, I want my vocal further down. I want it more buried in the track." And I'm going, ah, "You can't really do that." And and so I still listen to that album, thinking that, well, particularly on some tracks, I wish the vocals had been a bit louder. But I, I can see his point of view as well. But I don't know. I mean, the whole thing with making records is that you do what you think is best at that time, at that point, you know, and we're now discussing things that were done 40 years ago. Can you believe it? Over 40 years. It's mad, isn't it? It's absolutely mad. I mean, it seems like... How can the 80s be 40 years ago? It's just not... I know. It just seems like yesterday to me still. Unbelievable. And a side one. Do you love British TV? Do you love American accents? I'm Kaylee McMahon. I'm Stephanie Callis, and we would love for you to listen to our podcast, Anglophilia. Each season, we discuss six different British comedies, some we've seen and some we've hardly heard of. We dare to ask important questions like, is there a porn version of Mr. Bean? Are Viv and Mike from The Young Ones secret lovers? Are Patsy and Adina bigger stoners than Cheech and Chong? And more. Find Anglophilia on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or listen directly on our website, anglophiliapodcast.com. Toodlepip. What? you call me side two so, so we're going to approach side two which i think is is a brilliantly enjoyable side side two this is this whenever i listen to it, it always just flies by this side i think it's just such a perfect side to an album side to this album do you prefer side one or side two personally oh um <laughs> that's a question i suppose if if i had to have an answer I suppose and no one's ever asked me this question before i suppose i probably would say yes because i think you know what I mean is an unbelievably beautiful song, and I think "If Leaving Me Is Easy" is probably my favourite song on the whole album. And the ones that, well, I missed again is good fun, isn't it? And yeah, so yeah. Okay, so should we start playing "I Missed Again"? Ready for the countdown? Three, two, one, play. So it's interesting to listen to the demo of this, and it's uh, I Miss You, Babe, was the original Yes, yes. Yeah. Concept. I can't remember when or how. I'm, I'm using my senility now of 40 years. <laughs> to rem- to, I can't remember why or when the, the lyrics were changed. Um, I mean, I love this because um, I love the sort of Motown-y snare feels that snare feels that Phil does on the drums um, again Alfonso Johnson plays a wicked bass on this song um, sorry to go on about Alfonso and the bass but I'm I'm a I'm a sort of um, I'm a, a, a well I'm a bad bass player myself so bass and drums for me is always like really important it's the kind of spine as well it's like it's like 
in a human body, you know, everything hangs off the spine, doesn't it? And and for me in pop or rock songs, you know, if the bass and drums aren't together solid and good, then then you know it's 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 not a good record from my point of view. Anyway, that's that's just me. But um so anyway, he plays bass on this, which is fantastic. And um the horns are playing again, so it's probably um uh you know really sort of tight earth wind and fiery tight horn section isn't it you know the sound da, 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 you know all those stabby sort of horn things and the other thing when I was listening to it the other day that that I noticed is it's got Phil's playing piano on it and especially near the beginning or in the verses the the piano it's a real piano but it's incredibly compressed which means that it has a really long um you know if you play a chord on a piano it 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 dies out um you know naturally and if you put the loud pedal on it dies out slightly longer but if you compress it then then the the dying out or the sustain carries on even longer and it's like it's really um very compressed but that's just the sound thing so here now we've got um the famous dear ronnie scott playing sax so he came in and played the sax solo on this which was amazing um one take thing or with a few takes or i think we probably did do a few takes and it's not a very long solo and i guess phil had played at ronnie scott's with brand X and things like that. So, uh, uh, and, and I, I think Phil particularly was in awe of Ronnie, who's, you know, sadly died a few years ago now. But I mean, you know, Ronnie Scott still is the sort of, you know, the, the place to play jazz in London, isn't it? Mm. And um, so it was a real sort of coup, we thought, to get Ronnie to come down and play and he was a great character as well so yeah that great song love it love it love it yes and on to um i think there is your, you know, it's you know been my favorite it. track of the album you know what i mean i mean this is just so much a beautiful song isn't it just sounds effortless doesn't it just like it's just pure yeah and the strings on it we were huge fans of this guy who's producer as well and arranger called Arif Mardin. You probably, I'm sure you know. Of yeah, yeah, the Bee Gees. Atlantic producer, yeah. Bee Gees, but also, you know, Aretha Franklin and many other great R&B people from the 60s and, and 70s. And he became a great friend of both Sting and mine. And he um, was just an amazing gentleman. You know, Arif was Turkish, uh, same as uh, Ahmet Ertegun, and um, just an amazing guy. And I was so upset and shocked and sad when he died a few years ago, well before he should have done of cancer. He was one of my real heroes who became a friend, which was fantastic, really. And it's just such a beautiful song. I shouldn't really be talking over it, should I? <laughs> it's fine. It's kind of the point, so that's fine. You're allowed to. <laughs> when someone's doing a string arrangement and you're the producer, is it a case of 
you're going to have to deal with the arrangements provided or is there to and fro with this? Can you go back to him and say, this part here, I think you're overdoing it a bit. Can we just tone that down a bit? Well, when you overdub strings like this, we did this at Air London, which was um, this fantastic studio um, just by Oxford Street. And you book these musicians for sessions, three-hour sessions, and that's what we had three hours to do that song. I can't remember if we did the, uh, another session for it, Leaving Me Is Easy, which the strings are on as well. But anyway, yeah, you just try and do your best within the three hours, of, you know, with working the, um, you know, arrangements out, changing bits and pieces and that sort of thing. I guess you've got someone like Arif Mardin doing the string arrangement. It's going to be pretty good, isn't it? It's like, it probably won't be that much you'll, you'll want to yeah. Yeah, but, you know, there's always little bits and pieces that you need to adjust and, and stuff when you hear it for the first time in reality. Do you see what I mean? So yeah. Ari writes the score, and then when you hear it, you go, okay, yeah, it's absolutely fantastic, but how about not having the cellos in there and they can come in a bit later or something like that? Do you know what I mean? So track nine, Thunder and Lightning. Here we are, Thunder and Lightning. So this is this beat, not features, but has the we have two bass players on the album. And um this is John Giblin, who played on In the Air Tonight. So he's playing fretless bass on this. And again, it's a sort of show-off really for the Phoenix horns doing their sort of earth, wind, and fire thing. Phil was obsessed with earth, wind, and fire. And, um, you know, as we were discussing before, it was very much a sort of a new thing to have this sort of horn sound on, 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 on a white guy's album. So, um, and it's, again, you know, a lovely song, isn't it? I always um, thought this could have been a single. Was there any discussion where you're making the album of what potential singles could be? It was the case of that's not really our department. We'll just make an album and let the record company decide that. Yeah, very much so, actually. In those days, we would make an album. And actually, the record company that was Virgin were amazing. Who They just left us alone to, to do it. And we just took every song as it was. I think very often the artist and producer probably aren't the best people for choosing singles. So we just, we were making the album. We didn't think anything was going to be a single, let alone in the air tonight, mm -hmm. a four or five minute song. And um, so, yes, I mean, I'm sure it, it, it was a contender for a single, but while we were making the record, we never thought about anything in terms of, singleness we just thought here's a song let's make it as best we can and that and that was it you know don't forget we were both quite sort of naive we hadn't had a career like Arif Mardin you know 20 years or more of producing records so um yeah I think we did a pretty good job really and um there we go nice Guitar solo. Phil doing his yeah. His, <laughs> his yeah, yeah, like sort of thing. Um, 
And then he starts playing hand claps here. Yeah, it's cool. I don't know what more to say about this song, really. So at what point does the album come together in terms of it being an album as opposed to just working on random songs? And I mean, did you... Because it sounds like there was these 12 songs, basically. So you had an album's worth of songs you were working on. Yeah. From the very beginning, it was always going to be this album of songs as opposed to just finding an album eventually once you've got enough material? Well, I think as we discussed before, there were a couple of songs that got left off for whatever reasons it, it was. Um, so were, were the, the Genesis songs, Please Don't Ask and Misunderstanding, were they part of this at the stage where you were involved or was that already something that had been siphoned off for Genesis? No, misunderstanding was on 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 Duke, yeah. the, pre, the previous Genesis record. So that obviously that was, and that was that was the first sort of proper successful record um, Genesis had that Phil had written, and I think that gave him confidence to to carry on writing. But obviously, he started writing these songs because he he. You know, he 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 was having problems with his marriage, and he was sitting at home, and he had this equipment, and he was learning to use the equipment, and he had, you know, music in his head was coming out, but he knew that the the music wasn't suitable for Genesis, and so um, uh, I think he says it a little bit in that classic albums. Uh, uh, program, so you know there were, it, he he had no idea really that this was um, starting a solo career. I mean, yeah. we we were literally we didn't really know anything other than Phil had these songs. He didn't think they were suitable for Genesis. He didn't even know if he was going to stay in Genesis at the time because his wife had moved to Canada. And he was thinking that he was hoping to save his marriage. And he thought, well, I might have to move to Canada where she had gone to live. And if he was going to be in Canada, he probably couldn't be in Genesis as well. So everything was really up in the air at that time. And so, you know, we made this record not knowing anything if you know what I mean. We didn't even know it was actually going to be a, a credible album or, or not. And so, you know, again, it just comes down to he had these, you know, 12 or 14, 15 songs, whatever it was, and we just, you know, thank God um, we had a, a, a budget that the record label let us do it. I mean, in those days... There was no home recording apart from what we were talking about, um, you know, in terms of Phil's equipment that he had at home, but you couldn't really make a whole record like you can now. You know, you buy a laptop and you've got a studio on it and it cost a lot of money to make a professional sounding record in those days. And, and um, you know, all credit to Virgin for for letting it all happen, you know. Yeah, well, on the fade out of I'm Not Moving, so we've got 20 seconds on that. So any memories of recording that particular song? It's very Beatles-esque, yeah. that song. Yeah, it is, isn't it? And it, it's, it's funny because it's got no guitars on it at all. 
It's the only song I think. I was going to say, it's the only track that doesn't have guitars. Yeah. Yeah, it's weird. You don't really notice it unless somebody points it out to you. But I'll notice every time I hear it now, yeah. Okay. Another beautiful track, If Leaving Me Is Easy. So this, this is probably my favourite track on the album. And um, that's Don Myrick, Myrick, rather, from the Earth, Wind & Fire horn section, who plays this incredible alto sax. And uh, again, Alfonso Johnson on bass, amazing. I just think this is such a beautiful song. Now, Eric Clapton is credited on this, but I can never really hear guitar on this. Can you hear it? Is it is it noticeable, his guitar part? Um, no, I don't. <laughs> is it something you recorded and it was taken off, but you're still credited, or is he actually still on the finished record? Do you know, I honestly, I don't know. It's bugged I, me for years, like, because I can never, is it just me? I can never hear Eric. I know he's credited. Where is he then? Is he... I know, but sometimes, cover, is, it? is it actually credited on yeah, the album? Credited, yeah. Sorry, it, it could be one little note somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> we were so desperate to have Eric's name on the album. Oh, Eric's because, note. Because, you know, we, we were juniors at making albums. We didn't know anything, kind of, well, not that we didn't know anything about it, but but we didn't, you know, we didn't know how the album was going to be. So to have Eric Clapton's name on it. No, it looks cool. Was good. But no, I have to own up and say, I'm really not sure I can't hear. I can imagine being an Eric Clapton completist and buying the album 1981 because he's on track 11. And then, hey, why is the guitar so low? Like any, any extra guitar would have ruined this track, I think. It's just perfect as it is. It's one of those songs you just, just lose yourself in. I know. It's, it is so good, isn't it? I don't really want to talk over it. But anyway, I suppose that's what I'm here to do. So again, strings um, arranged by Arif, amazing. I love the sort of the the punctuation hits Yeah. later on in it, I think, are just magic. Um, I, Don Myrick plays the most amazing solo. And um, I don't know if you know, but... Um, a few years after this, he he was killed, um, very 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 sadly, and um, in the classic LA police thing, you know they they you know they they don't take any prisoners. The LA police and they knocked on his door, mistakenly, thinking there was especially some, if you have a certain colour. Well, exactly, yeah, and um, Don made a move and they just they shot him still goes on now doesn't it 40 years later don was such a lovely guy he was a lovable rogue but mm. all those guys were lovable rogues in some way so you know they all originally came from chicago and um anyway it was a very sad very very sad thing to hear when when Don had died because he plays the most amazing solo, doesn't he? And again, was it a few takes? Do you remember? Was it nailed in one or? No, I, I I don't think it was. I don't think it was many takes at all. We might have had the tracks to you know on a on a on a song like this. You're not using up as many tracks as as if it's got full on you know drums and. And the high-pitched um, backing vocals. That's Phil. Yeah. Was that always part of the arrangement or was that something that came in? Yeah, no, that's Phil trying to be his sort of 
you know. So because of the emotional content of the lyrics, by the time he was recording it, was he kind of professional about it? Or was this like an emotional element to the making of the record because of how raw it must have all still been? Or was that something he got out of his system during the, the, the demo process and the writing process? You know, I mean, I, I know that songs like In the Air Tonight, people obviously try and try to interpret what Phil's singing about. And as he keeps saying himself, he said, I don't know, the words just sort of came out. They didn't really sort of mean anything, but there's probably some sort of subconscious thing there is, you know, is there. But And, and, and I have no idea, really. I never used to sort of talk about the, the lyrics with Phil so so much to be honest so if leaving me with is easy is you know it's a, a bit more obvious isn't it that, that that it's sort of talking about his breakup I'm a massive Beatles fan and I, I genuinely love this version of Tomorrow Never Knows I think it's a fantastic version um, well you're very kind to say that the thing with making covers is that it's <laughs> It's really difficult because you've either got to cover a song in a really completely different way, mm. or or you've or you've you've got to sort of pay homage by sort of copying it, if you see what I mean. And I mean, we 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 try to do a, a cover on every Phil Collins album. Um, you know the the. Diane Ross and the Supremes we we did on on the second record, but I mean this is this is really a homage, isn't it, to 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 the original version? But um, do you know well, I, that eighties drum sound? That's that's what makes it so unique. Is like you got the production. It's got that early eighties production with the massive drum sound that they would have loved to have had in the sixties. The Beatles, so yes. Yeah. You can hear the very compressed sort of symbols that sound almost like backwards. Yeah. You know, like that. And so we we were like, um, you know, trying to do the backwards stuff like you can hear going on now, which is like El Shankar violin and stuff playing backwards. Um, it was really good fun doing this but I don't know how we actually managed to get it together in the way that 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 we did really it's it's um because it's all sort of a bit sort of all mushed up isn't it but it all makes sense as well and um we've even got the the kids choir from from LA in there somewhere but again I'm not really quite sure (laughs) where they are but of course, doing backward stuff in those days made you, you had to sort of take whatever you wanted on, on, on a piece of tape and then put the tape on another tape machine, but upside down, if you see what I mean. So it became backwards. Again, you know, in, in the digital world now, world now, you just press a button and it plays backwards. But in those days, it was quite sort of difficult and then you had to not only had you got to sort of put the tape um upside down backwards on 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 the tape recorder so it played it effectively backwards you then had to sync it into the main track so you had to get your assistant to go 
you know, you rehearse where you you got him to play the the button of the tape machine, if you see what I mean. So it'd be like me going, okay, three, two. So we're playing the main track and then three, two, one. Okay, try it now, you know, play it now. And if it if it worked, it worked. And if it didn't, we'd try it again and stuff. So it was really, really um and Matt, I, I always remember it was just absolutely hilarious trying, you know, doing this song. And I'm I'm, I'm amazed it it when when I think back at the technology that we had then that it came out as well as it did, because you don't know what backwards stuff is going to sound like until you actually do it. If it's yeah. yeah. So how long did it take to record this track from start? Oh to god, I, you know, I obviously don't remember, but um probably not that long, but we would have mucked around with it for a day or two so you can hear those backwards you know vocals at the back at the end there and of course this leads into the version of over the rainbow so yes yes again another crossfade so another when we were actually you know putting the album together at the end when everything was all finished and we were happy doing these crossfades you know would take bloody hours and so, yeah, somewhere over the rainbow comes in, and um, somewhere was this an ad lib in the studio? Or was this actually sung to be on the end of the album? No, I think it was always Phil's idea. I can't. I, I seem to remember it being sort of sprung up on, not sprung on me, but you know, I don't remember us ever sort of talking about it much, and then. Now, when you listen to it, you think, what an amazing, what a great sort of thing to um, end the album with. In terms but, of him, like, recording vocals, would he be, like, very kind of technically minded and, and you know, focused? Or would, it, or would there be an emotional element in recording the vocals? Would he get emotional recording the vocals? Because of how, how raw the lyrics were to him. I think he no he wouldn't he wouldn't get emotional in the sense that he would finish singing it and then break down crying and say oh I wish my marriage <laughs> hadn't broken up or anything like that do you know what I mean yeah but it was obviously emotional in the ter- in the sense that he sang it with emotion and when we sang uh, these songs and the same with the, the following albums, I always had to make sure I had three, four tracks open of in the 24 tracks to record vocals. And what, what would happen is that he would go out into the studio and sing the song three times all the way through without stopping. So we'd start at the beginning and he'd go out there and sing it. And the first one was sort of more of a well not necessarily a warm-up but could be a warm-up then he'd sing it two more times so in a four minute song you would be talking about you know after 15 20 minutes you would have recorded the vocals and then we would sit down with a piece of paper with the lyrics on the paper play each of the three tracks that we he had sung and pick out and we'd go through and go, okay, that line we like a lot. And we'd pick it out, and then we would we would do what was called comp the vocals onto the fourth track. In other words, we would uh, comping means taking taking the best 
bits of each of those three songs and um, making them into one good track. And yeah, that's yeah. often how people would would sing when they're making records. Did he ever do a perfect take where that wasn't needed, where he just he nailed it in one take and thought, we don't need to comp this, it's perfect as it is? Um, yeah, probably occasionally, but the only person I ever knew who really sang through and recorded literally everything in one take was David Bowie. And he was um, the most incredible singer, performer. Amazing, amazing, amazing. But anyway, a lot of artists take bloody weeks to make, to to do. I shouldn't be disparaging, but I mean... Oh, go on, be disparaging, go no, on. No, but for Phil to sing it three times... And and, and we we make a we made a sort of rule that it wouldn't sing it more than three times because if you sing something too much it loses its its meaning. So to to sort of sing it three times means you sort of get into it, you're into it, and then you sort of you know you've you've done it sort of thing, and you just try and take the best bits out of it. And so um, that's generally what what we used to do. So this this came out in eighty one, but obviously this predated John Lennon's death. The actual recording of it. So was there any any question after he died of thinking should we still put it out because it'll be seen as like are we doing this because it's like a tribute to Lennon even though it wasn't, or was it kind of fortunate well, it, it could still be a tribute to Lennon? It wasn't intended that way. When was John Lennon actually killed? No, early December nineteen eighty. Okay, that album was released in February eighty one. So I think it was released in February 81, yeah. but we were still recording the album because I remember vividly driving down the road to go to work because I think we finished the album at the end, very end of 1980. When, when are you saying John Lennon was killed? Well, it's December the 8th, 1980. December the 8th. Okay. So I remember driving down the road to go to work to finish the album. And I thought, why are all these John Lennon and all Beatles records being played on the radio this morning? Got to work and, you know, it was before the days of social media and all this. And, and then just discovered that he had been shot. And I was, we were absolutely shocked and appalled, obviously. And um, I really, you know, it's almost, it's one of those days like, well, I'm so old that I remember when when President Kennedy was killed in 1963, you know what I mean? It's one of those days that it doesn't matter how old you are or young you were, you, re you remember um, when you first heard it. And that I just remember vividly, driving down the Gold Hawk Road, and that's where the townhouse studio was in Shepherd's Bush. So, yes, we would have already had recorded Tomorrow Never Knows when he died. Okay, he so you think you hadn't finished, you were still either overdubbing or mixing after you found out he died? That's interesting. Yeah. yeah. It was all completed because, obviously, the album came out early 81. That, so you were recording quite late into the day then, before it was released then. Yes, yes, I think we did. Those sort of details I really can't remember. And, I mean, it was released the middle of February, wasn't it, 81? Yeah. And, of course, I would have been 
straight off doing another, I'm sure we probably would have had Christmas off. And then in January, I would have been working with somebody else. And I probably wouldn't even have remembered uh, the fact that it was released when it was released. But um, I'm even wondering if I was working with Phil again with Genesis on Abacab at the beginning of 81. Yeah, I assume it had been Ghost in the Machine first and then probably have a cab after that. Okay, yeah. 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 You know, I was literally running from job to job and um, in, the, in the case of the police, you know, flying off mm. to the Caribbean, which all sounds very romantic and stuff like that. But it was good fun. I mean, I was, I was flying high. I was only 25, you know, 25, 26. Uh, Hang on, I was 25 in... February, my birthday's in February as well. So I would have been 26 when Face Value was uh, released. <laughs> so I put, I put a question in my notes that I realised having interviewed you before is, is a pretty pointless question. I was going to ask you, when did you sense this was going to be a success? But you were never, as you said in our previous interviews, you were never really aware of the success of the projects you're working on because you're on to the next thing all the time. But as this was your first production credit, were you aware that something was happening with this album with within the air tonight was that noticeable to you then oh yes i think it was you know i would get even if i was away or somewhere you know we used to look at um two magazines in those days one one was um music week which was the had the english charts in it and the other one was billboard which had the american charts in it but billboard also had the charts from around the world you know from most territories around the world and so you relied on looking at these magazines to see where your record was in the charts, if it, you know, if it was in the charts and stuff. So, yes, I mean, obviously I would have been doing something else. And the fact that In the Air, became, yeah, I mean, it, it, it was quite a big deal In the Air because it was so unusual to be a single and everybody then, you know, was talking about the drum sound and all that. What did you think about, I think, in America? I don't know if it was in the UK as well, but in America, the, the single version, they mixed it, so had drums all the way through. Oh, well, that, that, that's, that's a whole other story. Do you want me to talk about it? Yeah, uh, yes. Yeah, I was wondering what your, your thoughts Okay, are. so when we finished the album, Phil was so sort of involved in every aspect of the album because even when he had started the, the, the demos, he was interested in, you know, he, like I said, he recorded his demos at home using this equipment that he had just got that was quite sophisticated for the time, you know, this one-inch eight-track and a proper little mixing board that he had. And so he was, like, leaning on me during the whole making of the album. Oh, how do you do this? How do you do that? You know, Whereas people like Sting had no interest in the, in the technical side of make, making the record. Phil was really sort of into it. And when we finished the record, he said, OK, well, look, where, you, you know, we chatted so much during the record about, in those days, vinyl was the only way that the, the record came out. And so there were these what they call cutting rooms or mastering rooms where you would take the tape and convert it into a vinyl that would then end up going to the factory and being, you know, stamped, pressed into hundreds or thousands or millions, if you're lucky, of albums that ended up in the shop. You know, even the album cover, as you notice, 
I mean, his face is on the front of it. All the, all the notes are handwritten. He just wanted to be involved in every single aspect of it. So when we finished the record, he's, he, he said, well, where are we going to master it? And I said, well, look, this is the great place in London. This is the great place in New York. And this is the great place in L.A. I mean, obviously, there were good other places as well, but I sort of, you know, said these are the places that I know of. And don't forget, I'm only 25, so I'm doing it all from, like, looking at records I loved, reading the credits on on the covers. So he said, "Okay, well, let's get, let's send the tape to each of those three places, get them to master it, and see which one sounds best. And I said, well, normally you attend the mastering session. You know, you go as the producer and often the artist wouldn't go. But it was like, hang on, this is going to be too difficult to go to all three places. So we decided to go to this place in New York. So we attended the session in New York. We didn't attend the session in London and we didn't attend the session in L.A. So anyway, while we're in New York, Ahmet Ertigan, we get hold of Ahmet, or, or Phil gets hold of Ahmet, and Ahmet comes down to listen to the album because it was released on Virgin in England, but it was Atlantic in North America. And Ahmet, you know, he was a god. So it's like Ahmet wanted to come and listen to our album. This is amazing. So he came down to the mastering session because he was based, always based in New York. And so we played him the album and he loved it. And he really, he loved it in the air tonight. But he said, he talked in this really sharp, like, you know, kind of New York type kind of accent, like, like this, you know. So he's like Turkish, Turkish uh, uh, New York accent. And he said, the thing is with in the air, I really, I really, really like him, but I can't hear a backbeat. You gotta have a backbeat. I think it could be a single, but you gotta have a backbeat. And so it was like, oh, okay. We, I mean, so we, we were on the one hand a bit slightly pissed off because we loved In The Air as it was. And we loved the fact that you weren't expecting the drums when you listened to it for the first time. You know, the whole thing was the shock of the drum fill coming in at the end. And so it was like, oh God, well, but the problem is, is if if Ahmet wants drums in it and, and he's the head of Atlantic and this, that, the other way, we, you know, we, we're gonna have to sort of appease him in some way. So anyway, we cut the album as it was, and then we went back to England. And um, so anyway, we, we did the mastering session, went back to England and thought, well, you know, we're going to have to do what Ahmet says, because he's Ahmet and he's Ahmet and he's the head of the record company that's releasing the record in America. So we had a chat about it and we thought, oh God, we can't... We can't face going back into the studio and, you know, recording more drums on it and remixing it and everything. So kind of we or I had this brainwave and we said, well, why don't we just overdub a backbeat onto the mix that we've already got, right? Do you understand what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. yeah. So 
I always remember this. We booked a session. I don't know why we booked it there, but we booked a session at um, this studio called Strawberry Studios South, which was in Dorking, which wasn't far from where Phil lived. And it was owned by 10CC. Yes, yes. Who had Strawberry Studios in Manchester. So we went in to the studio one morning and we had the mix, the original master mix of In The Air Tonight. So you're talking a stereo mix. So we put it on a two-track machine, played it through the recording console. We mic'd up Phil's drums and we basically mixed his drums with the original master onto another two-track. So we're basically overdubbing onto the original mix. And that is what became that version of In The Air Tonight. So is it, I guess, a pragmatic thing or kind of done through gritted teeth like... Well, it was slightly done through. It It is about the fact that drums come out of nowhere. That's the whole point of it, isn't it? Yeah, but we tried to downplay, you know, this version so that, you know, we tried to keep the drums... Yeah, they are quite subtle, actually. It's not... Quite subtle. So you still got the big thing at the end, but it it did what Armet wanted it to do. But the ironic thing is, is that even though that was released as the single in America, not in the UK, in America, most DJs in America chose to play the album Uh. version which yeah. obviously didn't have those on it. So we kind of lucked out, really. So that means American people would have heard on the radio, loved it, bought the record, thought, what the hell is this? This is not what I heard on the radio. I know. It's not really cheating, <laughs> wouldn't it? But do you know what? I've never heard anybody say, I prefer no. the Armet version. No, you wouldn't, would you? No. So um, you alluded to it in, in the, um, during the audio commentary, but um, Against All Odds, take a look at me now. Yes. So that was one of the demos. Was that offered? The, the demo version that's on the reissue? heard at the time as one of the potential tracks to record or was it just a work in progress that didn't go any further at the time? Well the thing with Against All Odds is that he had the song but it had completely different lyrics completely different lyrics and I'm trying to kind of remember as faithfully as I can I thought and possibly Phil thought that the lyrics and the song sounded a bit wet to me (laughs) Well, not trying to be rude, but I just thought we had such a fantastic album that was not sort of, you know, it was, I, I really sort of remember thinking this is a music album, this is an album that musicians are going to play rather, it, rather than it be commercial success. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And we had these great people playing on it. So you didn't want some cheesy ballad on there with wet lyrics? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> and so after the success of Face Value, he then got asked 
would he provide a song for this film? And so was the lyric originally Take a Look at Me Now? You said there's a different lyric before that. It was it was a bit like, you know, how I missed the game got changed, if you see what I mean. Do you know what I mean? I can't remember, but I, I just remember that he completely changed the lyrics for, to fit the film. So I don't even remember what the original lyrics were, but they were not even close to what he rewrote. But it shows how strong the album is, because it's such a great tune against all odds that like, even, like you didn't need it because you had the you had the album already. You could you could afford to say no, leave, leave that for another time. It annoyed that you didn't actually get to produce against all odds. I know, and I think you know uh, Arif did it, which I'm very very happy about. It's quite sort of eighties, sort of um, you know all big hair and mullet sounding, isn't it? <laughs> you know what I mean. Yeah. I have to say, at the time, I was I was slightly myth just because I, you know, obviously I ended up doing four or five records with Bill that I couldn't do against the Lovers because I was, you know, obviously doing some album somewhere else. So Bill did it, and the fact that he did it with Ari was great. But uh, yeah, no, I mean, I, you know, I don't, I, 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 I don't have any bad feelings at all about. I, I do think it's a bit sort of, you know, the Phil Collins drum sound on it has all got sort of digital reverb on it and stuff. It just sounds a bit sort of, what's the word? Artificial. Yeah, it's a, it's a bit artificial. I mean, a bit, like I said, all sort of 80s mullets and big hair and, and stuff. But um, anyway, that's what it is. I mean, I, I loved working with Phil on all those albums, but as he became a bigger and bigger pop star, uh, well, star, so he became a pop star, whereas I think on face value, he's not a pop star. It's no. just him making a really good album. And I'm not saying the other albums weren't great because they became more and more successful and, you know, that was great for all of us in our, our career. But Face Value is still my favourite album of all of them, even though, it, you know, the others surpassed it from a sales volume point of view. When it was reissued in 2016, were you involved in the remastering of the album at all? No, I bloody wasn't. And I was really pissed off about is that, to be honest. All? Well, it's the kind of thing that Phil or his management, they just don't, think about it you know and when you heard it what do you think of it the remastering is there anything that stood out as like that's not what was the original intention that wasn't what we meant 
they've got a bit wrong. Or... I, I think the remastering is is mostly uh, done as a as a vanity thing, not as a vanity. I think it's just the you know the record company is able to marketing. There's only a certain amount you can do with remastering anyway. I mean, you can you know put a bit more treble on, you can compress it a bit more, you can put a bit more bass on it, or or you know each song you can look at differently and all that sort of thing. You you can't change the sort of you know the character of it really i mean what i was listening to this afternoon before we did this interview uh on spotify i'm listening to the remastered album done in 2015 and i i couldn't tell that it wasn't my mixes do you know what i mean okay all right so haven't them ruined it then that's, that's something no i don't think they can ruin it but i was still a bit pissed off that they didn't ask me yeah to be involved in it but that's you know tony smith the manager probably wouldn't occur to him to be honest okay slightly well, annoying no like, i can imagine it's your work it's your it's your baby isn't it it yeah. also didn't occur to them to um invite me to the the last Genesis concerts, which happened. not well. Luckily, uh, Mike Rutherford, who's remained a good friend, invited me. But I was slightly, uh, you know, it's like, well, surely uh, the office probably could have invited me as you know as well. Eightisography, quick fire round. All right, let's, let's end on a, a quick fire round. Always do a quick fire round. Five questions to end on. How many copies of the album do you own? Oh. I would own some test pressings and the original acetate, which would probably be worth a fortune, completely, utterly uh, original, which I still have. And I also have acetates from the other two cutting rooms that we were talking about. And then original copies that you could have bought in the shop. I've probably got uh, probably two or three. Um, What format? Oh, 12-inch vinyl. Oh, I've got I've got some CDs as well. I don't think I've got any cassettes, though, <laughs> <laughs> luckily. Uh, where do you keep your platinum discs for the album? I know we've talked about it before. You, you've got your, your plat cave, haven't you, we talked about? Yeah, I've got my plat cave or my man cave. So they are there, which is a nice room at the top of the house, but it's not showy-offy in the sense that people would not come into my house and see any records hanging on the wall unless... Which I would say, why not, Hugh? Why not? Look, well, Hugh... because I'm too modest. Oh, all to modesty, eh? Come if, on. If, 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 well, I've got this sort of, you know, plat cave, as we say, at the top of the house, and that's where I've got my really sort of smart, proper hi-fi system with the with the vinyl. And so they're in that room. Are they organised? Like, would you better go straight to it and know exactly where the face value ones are? Do you have, like, a oh. Phil Collins wing of your plaque cave? Or... Yeah, yeah. No, I've got all my vinyl records in, in um, alphabetical order and stuff, yeah. So do you have your records in one area, then, where everything you worked on, or is it just all mixed in with everything? No, what I've got is, is I've got um, uh, these sort of shelves that the albums you know properly designed for albums and they're all in there and they're all in alphabetical order and then any that I've got spare so if I've got three face values there'll be one in the alphabetical order and then the two others are at the end in a in a section where they are all my 
own sort of records, if you see what I mean. Yes, or the Hugh Padgham collection. Yeah, I like that. Yeah. When you say alphabetical order, are the alphabetical order by artist or by album title? No, by artist. By artist. Okay, that's, that's good. Yeah. I'd, be, I'd be worried for a second. If you could have any song from Face Value covered, which one would it be and by whom? Mm. Could anyone sing one of those songs? Well, it couldn't be Tomorrow Never Knows, could it? So, <laughs> <laughs> It'd be a bit pointless, I guess. But I, don't, I, don't, I, I honestly would hate to hear anybody covering in the air because it would just be... Really? Well, I, I'm sure somebody could do a good version of Leaving Me As Easy. But I don't know who it could be. You've really copped me on this question. Yeah, yeah. I should have, should have given you prior warning on that one, shouldn't I? Yeah. The Eternal Jukebox. Okay, the Eternal Jukebox for face value. So which three tracks would you keep for eternity? And if you had to bin one of them, which one would you get rid of? Like all future reissues, we're only going to have 11 tracks. You've got to choose which track you lose and then which three are kept for all eternity. Well, the ones I would keep would be In the Air, I missed again, and if leaving me is easy, I suppose. Can I have a fourth one or not? Yeah, yeah, go for it. Yeah. Okay, you know what I mean, I guess. Yeah, that's fine. And, and, but if I was going to dump one, it would have to be Tomorrow Never Knows because I've always got the Beatles version, which is great as well. That's a good logic. And finally, your three words to describe how you feel about face value. Very, very proud. Yeah, how, how did it feel revisiting it after all these years? Well, you know, I'm not in in the, in the business of playing my own albums very much. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. So when you when you play it, can you hear the work that went into it, or can you actually hear it as a collection of songs and enjoy it that way? Yeah, I mean, without being sort of over emotional, I was a bit emotional about it because I really think it's bloody good album, and I'm not the kind of person who would say that you know uh, you know in terms of you know personal modesty you know you don't i'm not like some of these american people who you know like niall rogers who on um desert island discs <laughs> played nine nine out of ten of the songs he played on desert island Discs were his own or his own productions do you know what i mean yeah. <laughs> I like Niall, I know him, I like him, but it's I'm not like Niall, if you see what I mean. Yeah. No. So anyway, um, yeah, no, it was quite emotional listening to it, and I did think a bloody good album, and I hope it still stands up in another 40 years' time. That is the end of Face Value. Thank you. So that is Face Value, audio commentary. Many thanks, as always, to Hugh Padgham. Always good value. I almost forgot how good an album Face Value is. It's such such a good album. I like to do my own album edits, and the one change I would probably take droned out. I think one instrumental is enough. And there, you could do an alternate version where you actually start with hand in hand. It's like the the instrumental overture, and that kind of like fades into in the air tonight. That would kind of work. <laughs> Anyway, we'd love to do another audio commentary with Hugh. I keep trying to talk him into press to play, but uh, he's, a, he's a bit resistant to that idea, but I'm going to keep trying. Come on, Hugh. I think it'll be fascinating. Anyway, so massive thanks again to Hugh. Um, there are many references made in the uh, commentary to the classic albums documentary on Face Value, and I, I 
recommend you, you check that out. I think it was done in the early 2000s. It's really interesting. There's some, some great bits with Phil and Hugh at the mixing desk together. And Phil offers an alternative explanation of the behind the lines, hearing it sped up and deciding to do a version like that. I'm sure the truth is probably some kind of combination of the two accounts, but that was really interesting. What's coming up next? There's an Amaya Tizography coming up next in two parts. Uh, I'll give you a clue for it. The subject. In June 1984, it worked on the UK top three singles. So that's a bit of a clue. And I think I think we should should end the episode with, with Phil. So I'll, I'll see you soon and then, you, yeah. And uh, so, yeah, just, just, just say a bit, Phil. Thank you. The most personal song of all from this whole batch of songs, really the most personal song was a song called Please Don't Ask, which was literally all about, you know, bar mentioning names, you know, it was about kids, it was about what was happening, it was about my problems, my, my situation. I mean, I've never really written anything like that since. I can remember song you could do differently now but you know you could do it as a ballad now as opposed to a, something else but that's the way a lot of these songs were written you know they were written because the communication was at a, a low so they were written as letters messages phone calls that, that had the phone not gone down might have occurred <laughs> things like that you know. ah those are the days Yeah, just listening to the album earlier again today, just just the side two songs just flies by, side two, I find. Yeah, I don't know how long it actually physically is. I think it's probably about the same length as side one, I thought. Yeah. See, the great thing about making records in those days is you couldn't really put more than 25 minutes. And even then, that was maximum on a, on a side. And I, I still get really bored of albums that... Go on yeah, I think that's why 80s albums have aged better than 90s albums. Because you get in the CD generation, you're talking about 50 plus minutes an album, and those tracks that should have been would have originally been B sides are now on the album. 
So you're going to get a watering down of the quality of an album where you'd have had a 10 track, perfect 40 minute album in 81. You got a 53 minute album in 1991. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Couldn't agree more, but one doesn't want to come over like a sourpuss, do you? Or... Oh, you've earned the right. Come on. <laughs> Any platinum albums have you sold? You've earned the right. I, I don't have the right. I'm a sourpuss. <laughs> somebody who's had an amazing career, so you have the right. Let me know when you're ready. Okay, I'm ready. Okay, three, two, one, and play. Feel free to shout it loud. Speak your mind. Spit it out. <laughs> 